Well, I'd like you to take your Bible and, and just one more Sunday open to the very beginning of that Bible, right at the beginning chapters of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there to those opening chapters, Genesis 1, 2, 3, that we've been looking at these past couple weeks. Bruce Walkey, who's a Old Testament and Hebrew scholar, in his Old Testament theology said this, quote, it is a truism of anthropology that male leadership is normative in every culture and there is no evidence anywhere of matriarchy. He goes on to quote Stephen Goldberg, chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College in New York, his book, Why Men Rule, A Theory of Male Dominance, and this is not a Christian, this is not a conservative at all. This man says this, quote, the point is that authority and leadership are and always have been associated with the male in every society. And I refer to this when I say that patriarchy is universal and that there has never been a matriarchy. Margaret Mead, another well-known sociologist, acknowledged that, quote, it is true that all claims so glibly made about a society ruled by women are nonsense. We have no reason to believe that they ever existed, end quote. Now, that's a fascinating, I think, fascinating observation of human history and culture. That's, that's not a valuative statement saying that that's always been good. We know it hasn't always been good, right? The abuses and the subjugation and demeaning of women are well documented in human history. So we know that it's not always been good. However, the question is, does this, quote, truism of anthropology, as Walkie calls it, suggest anything about the nature or design of men and women? Walkie himself concludes that, quote, it suggests that this truism of anthropology suggests that nature tends to validate scripture that men were created to lead. It's an interesting observation historically. We are looking at what I've entitled God's grand design, the beauty of biblical complementarity. And this is part four of this series. The first three parts, I attempted to kind of lay down what I call biblical foundations for the complementarity of men and women from the first three chapters of Genesis. That's where we spent our time. Part one was Genesis 1, key verse here. I'll put it on the screen or it's in your Bible there. Verse 27, and God created man, human beings, humanity, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we saw God created humanity in only two sexual kinds, male and female. And that both male and female are created in the image of God. So that male and female are equal in value, in dignity, and personhood. And that both male and female are equally necessary as a reflection 
of God and the fulfillment of his creation purposes. So that was part one. Part two was Genesis 2, where we saw God created the man and woman differently and complementary. His intentional design, a fascinating chapter. Here's key verse here. I'll just put it up there. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, thinking of Adam, whom he had created to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him, opposite like him. We said right here is kind of the heart of this complementary nature of man and woman. Equal in personhood, value equal in the sight of God, yet different in design. Yes, different in function. We saw and we concluded from chapter two that God, this basic primary headship or leadership, God created man for and this primary quote, what I called helpership of woman, not a demeaning thing at all, but as it's fleshed out biblically, a very dignified, beautiful kind of role and that kind of relationship this headship, helpership is uniquely displayed in the covenant of marriage, this one flesh union. And then last week was part three, Genesis three, as a result of the fall of human beings, Adam and Eve into sin, the corruption and consequences, there are distortions to the complementarity of men and women. Again, key verse there, lots of verses there. We saw the whole chapter, chapter 3, verse 7, after they sinned and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. We thought on the alienation, the shame, that has happened because of the fall. Instead of, like we saw in chapter 2, this beautiful harmony, this beautiful intimacy, there is now alienation, shame, mistrust, competition, domination, abuse. There is now a tendency of both men and women to rebel against God's design and to make self dominant. It's the result of the fall. It's devastating. So we laid those foundations and I, I left with this kind of key principle that I do want us to have and I'll just put up here, I said it like this, the complementarity of man and woman is an essential aspect of God's good design before the fall, not as a result of the fall. I think that's really really important to kind of nail down in this whole series as we're doing of men and women complementarity that is part of God's good design Genesis 1 and 2 it's not the result of the fall though the fall does affect it and distort it right and so as we move through this story and ultimately into the New Testament and with Jesus and we talk about restoration it's not obliterating these distinctions it's a return a restoring to god's good design that he intended for us so just again i'll keep saying that mark that down as i said those who perhaps disagree with 
my understanding or our understanding of this complementarity of men and women often assert that those distinctions are a result of the fall. And I'm arguing that's not true. Now, the story moves forward from there. The rest of the Old Testament. My son asked me, what are we going to do today? I said, we're going to do the other 900 plus chapters of the Old Testament. So he had some wide eyes there. Like, That'll take a while. Not really, but kind of. We're going to move the story forward. As the story moves forward here, we saw the last thing we saw in Genesis 3 is they are expelled from this sanctuary, this paradise, which was both a gift and part of their judgment into the land outside of Eden now under this judgment in this fallen state, in this fallen condition to live. God's program is not over. Thankfully, there is a chapter four of Genesis. He didn't end it all in chapter three. It's going to continue on. And as it does continue on, we we see distortions of this complementary design. One thing we see right away that I just mentioned that we just take for granted is marriage. Marriage continues. Marriage, in fact, becomes the norm. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. It's assumed. We just read right over that. But this creation of God in Genesis 2 of this marital covenant relationship is what we see all through the Bible. So that happens. But we also see many distortions to this design of God. Where do we see these distortions? Well, you just start reading in Genesis and right away, just a few generations from Adam, we see polygamy. In fact, it's right there in chapter 4. If you, just, if you have your Bible open there, you can glance down chapter 4, verse 19. Lamech took to himself two wives. So it's just a little bit after Adam. So we see polygamy, and that'll be characteristic throughout the Old Testament. We'll see adultery violating this one flesh union. We will see homosexuality, even in the book of Genesis. What Paul in the book of Romans will call parafusin. These Greek words meaning against nature. That is against God's natural design. We'll see that. We'll see incest and eventually divorce. So definitely distorted. We see the effects of the fall. We see the effects of sins play out. However, though there are distortions abuses yet as god forms his people his great plan of redemption this basic design of men and women this complementary design especially amongst his people continues where do we see it so this morning what i've entitled old testament patterns patriarchs priests kings and prophets <laughs> Old Testament patterns. Are there patterns in the Old Testament among God's people that display and instruct in the complementarity of men and women? Now, it is easy to simply dismiss the Old Testament as hopelessly steeped in unenlightened patriarchal culture. Often just dismissed that it's just so steeped in patriarchal, unenlightened culture of the ancient Near East that it is irrelevant to this subject. 
which might be true, except that it is the word of God. It's not just a description of an ancient culture. It is God's revelation. Yes, some of it is descriptive and some of it is prescriptive. But what God blesses and sanctions. So we come to it like that. Understanding this is God's word. These are God's people. What can we glean and learn? Yes, we're not under the law today. We're not part of the old covenant. But is there patterns here we can learn? Certainly there are cultural expressions that are not normative for today. We don't live in big family clans as an agricultural economy. There are cultural expressions that are not normative. But are there consistent Patterns based on God's design or prescriptions or blessings that are relevant. I think there are, but we always need to exercise caution. Kevin DeYoung issues this word of caution. He's a pastor, author. says we always need to be careful in using patterns lest we turn a description into a prescription. It's a good word. And yet the more often we see something in the Bible, the more appropriately we can derive principles from the patterns, especially if the pattern is consistent, if it's associated with noble characters, and if it reflects the design in Genesis. It's a good word. We need to be cautious, and we'll try to be cautious. So here we go. Old Testament patterns. Now, I'm just going to confess to you right at the beginning, this, this is very different than what we normally do. This is just a crash Old Testament survey of these patterns, and we're not going to develop any one specific text, which does make me a little uncomfortable. That's what we normally always do here. So indulge me for this Sunday, maybe next Sunday, to just think more broad view, okay? Now I'm going to, as I go through this, you'll see lots of text referenced. I'm not going to develop those. We'll look at one or two. Uh, But if you want to write those down and look, and I just ask you to check it out, right? I I just, this is not my favorite way to preach at all. I feel a little uncomfortable in that. And I think you just should be more vigilant to say, is that really true? Let's check that, right? So, So be discerning and thinking as we go through this. It is outside normal, but I think at times it's helpful to step back and kind of get a bigger picture look. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So fair warning. Um, this morning on these patterns. Let me give you, I have three patterns from the Old Testament that I think are instructive. We're going to look at two of them this morning. I'm going to leave the third one for next week because I think it needs more time to develop. So here's the first one. First pattern, the equality of men and women. The equality of men and women. Remember, this is our starting point in complementarity. That we are equal in value, equal in personhood, made in the image of God. Now, I just I start here because this is so often overlooked in the Old Testament. Critics often look just with disdain on the Old Testament, as I said, as as demeaning to women, steeped in patriarchy. And don't see the value that the Bible, God's word, places on women, the value and honor. We'll say a lot more about that next Sunday. But I start here. What do you see equality? Let me just bullet some things here. Equality in worship. Women sang, danced, wrote songs, made vows, offered gifts and sacrifice at the altar. Women did. Independent of husbands, times, 
Women did this. Sang, danced, wrote songs. They were worse. That was their relationship with the Lord. So men and women equally in this wrote songs. Some of our great worship songs. We think of Miriam's role with Exodus 15, the song at the sea. Her role there of leading women there. Or Deborah. We'll think more of Deborah next week. She writes one of the great early songs of the Bible. One of the earliest that we have. So women participated in these things. They took Nazarite vow. This vow of consecration was men and women. Offering sacrifices. Bringing them to the priest. Men and women. So equality. Also, next bullet. Equality in prayer. Women prayed directly to God. It wasn't the mediation of their husband. Again, we see examples of that in Genesis, that really tender example of Hagar. It was cast out two different times in Genesis 16 and 21. God just calls her by name. I think it's the only time in the Bible he addresses this woman by name in this sense and his care for her, he hears her prayer. Of course, the great model of Hannah. <laughs> Hannah and her desire to have a child. Her weeping and crying before the Lord and the Lord hears. So, examples of that. Next bullet. Third, they shared, they had a shared role in teaching children spiritual truths. Wisdom. Wisdom. Teaching spiritual, not just teaching Math or how to write, but teaching spiritual truths, the heritage of Israel. Again, we, we see that in Proverbs. Even the woman there at the end, chapter 31, that ideal of wisdom, she opens her mouth in wisdom as she instructs her children. Proverbs is written as a father instruction to his son. Right, that's the... the Lots of reasons that's the way that book is written. Fathers do have a responsibility, a primary responsibility in instructing their children in spiritual things. But part of the father's instruction is don't neglect the teaching of your mother. Proverbs 1.8. It's right there. Again, let me quote Bruce Walke here commenting on that. He says, Israel's sages, that is those who wrote wisdom literature like Proverbs, are cultural revolutionaries. In elevating mothers to teach the national spiritual heritage to their children. The father's command to the son, do not forsake your mother's teaching, seems unexceptional until we realize that the mother is not mentioned as a teacher in ancient Near Eastern literature. Did you know that? For the mother to teach Israel's inherited wisdom, she herself had to be taught. Suggesting that the son, even in the book of Proverbs, is more than just males. That's quite. They're cultural revolutionaries. We take it for granted. They didn't take it for granted in this culture. This is one place, again, where the, the Bible goes against the culture. So women are valued. One other sphere here of equality. And I want to explain this one a little bit. Because it can be confusing and even controversial. There's some share in the prophetic gifts and calling. Some share in the prophetic gifts and calling. There are four women in the Bible who are called prophetesses. Female prophets in a positive sense. Godly women 
prophetesses. There are four of them. I'll list them there on the screen for you. Miriam, Moses, Aaron's sister, Exodus 15, where she does lead in that song. She is called Miriam the prophetess. Deborah in Judges 4, we'll consider here next Sunday in more detail. Isaiah's wife is called that, Isaiah 8.3. And then Huldah, 2 Kings. In fact, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to flip over. We just finished the book of Kings, 2 Kings, before this series. So just, I want to remind you of this one, 2 Kings. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 22. We went through this in detail, uh, the story. But let me remind you of this point here of the story, because it is instructive this way. Huldah, 2 Kings 22. Remember the setting? This is Josiah, that young king, who became king at that young age, and then... Uh, as he's coming age, he's going to do these reforms, and they find the book. Remember the discovery of the book in the temple that had been lost, which is the book of Deuteronomy, for the most part, the book of the law. And they discover, this is a great story. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Kings here. It's so instructive. They found the book, and they read the book and realize we're in trouble because of our disobedience to these words. And Josiah here, he wants to know what's going to happen. Are we out of time? should we do? And that's where he says, look at it, 2 Kings 22. He's going to command them to go to the prophetess. Hmm. So he says in verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me and his people and all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written. So, he commissions these men, Hilkiah, the, the men listed there, and they went to, verse 14, to Huldah, the prophetess. Now, here's what's interesting. Jeremiah and Zephaniah are both prophets during this time. It's not a lack here of a male prophet. They're both prophets. He goes on to say there in verse 14 that she is the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem, the second court. The point of all that is she is living right in Jerusalem. She's connected with the temple. She's right there. She's available. And so they spoke to her. And she said, thus says the Lord God, tell the man who sent you to me. And then we know what she told him, that judgment's coming, right? So it's, it's an interesting, we saw that. She's in Jerusalem. There's no hesitation to go to her. And her words are equal in standing with a Zephaniah or a Jeremiah in authority, right? Thus says the Lord. So she's an example of one. Those other prophets, we'll, we'll look at Deborah next week, prophetesses. Uh, the other two, Miriam, we just know that little bit about her leading music and the wife of Isaiah, we don't know anything about what she did. So this is, our, this is a good example. Deborah's another one, and we'll see that. So, so it's instructive. Now, at the same time, as I said, we only have these a few examples. So we have 1,500 years of Israel's history. We know of four. Right? So that's not a lot. It's not prevalent. It's not the norm. It's not dominant. These women didn't serve as what I'll call, quote, national prophets like Elijah and Isaiah, those who uh, spoke over long periods of time to the whole nation, had a very public ministry, 
Uh, the example of these women are not that. She's in Jerusalem. You go to her, get this word. We'll see the same thing with Deborah next week. We know that all of the writing prophets, the ones who had this kind of national public platform, were men. That is all the books, the prophet, the prophetic books of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12, are men. So there is definitely a distinction here. And yet, here is a prophetic ministry. So let me just, I'm going to insert an aside here. And just a, a note about the role of the prophet. This is important. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament. Again, we, we've seen it. So we've been through the book of Kings and we saw Elijah and Elisha. We had two great examples. This is the role of the prophet. Remember, the prophet speaks God's revelatory word when God gave it to them <laughs> to hear it. Here's a word, go speak it. They weren't the teachers of Israel. Don't confuse that. We'll see, that's the priest. They weren't the rulers of Israel. They came with this sometimes occasional type of ministry as the Lord gave it, situational. So I'll just give you a couple notes here. They served, prophets did, outside the institutional authorities in Israel. Their ministry was situational and occasional. As the Lord gave them words. It's when God's word came to them. So they served outside the institutional authorities. That is the priesthood and the monarchy in this case. Those were the institutional authorities. The prophets weren't part of them. They weren't really accountable in that sense to them. They would speak to them. As such, they had no enduring governmental authority. No subjects obliged to follow no human sanctions for ignoring their words. So different than king, priest. They didn't have any of that type of authority. They said they weren't the teachers. There's no human sanctions that is written in the law. For, now, there's certainly divine sanctions. Absolutely. Because their words are true. So that's the role of a prophet. So that's important to kind of understand even as we think. But... Women occasionally shared in that prophetic gift. Again, we'll think a little bit more of that next week. So that, that's where I want to start. The equality of men and women under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. We see these examples, and we should learn from that. Men and women, their relationship before the Lord here. But now let me move to the second pattern. The second pattern. The priority of male leadership. The priority of male leadership. So we're seeing these complementary design of God now being kind of fleshed out in his people. Yes, an equality before the Lord, and yet a priority in this pattern of male leadership. Now, again, this is one of those things that is probably so obvious that we rarely stop and think about it. We just rarely stop and think about it. We should stop and think about it. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. Or... This is what leads to the criticism of the Old Testament as hopelessly patriarchal. In fact, one newer translation of the Bible, the NIV Inclusive Language Edition, in their preface, this is what they say. This is their translation philosophy. At the same time, it was recognized that it was often appropriate to mute the patriarchalism of the culture of the biblical writers through gender-inclusive language 
when this could be done without compromising the message of the spirit, end quote. You need to mute the patriarchalism of the culture. I just think that's dangerous ground because part of this is God designed as part of his message. So often the Old Testament's criticized for this. But let's just think about it. Again, these are obvious. I hope these are obvious. But in light of what I just, the first point, the equality of men and women, and the scripture's willingness to buck the culture at different points. This should be all the more important. It's not just settling into the culture. These are part of God's pattern and even part of his prescriptions. So that should help us. That should be informative. So here they are. These patterns, A, B, and C here. A, patriarchs. Patriarchs. Note, leadership in the family was focused on the father. He was in charge of and responsible for the welfare of his family. So we refer to the patriarchs. We think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Now that word, again, this is the word that is often reacted against, patriarchs or patriarchal, but that's it's actually a Bible word. The New Testament uses that word when referring back to these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the, the 12 sons. Remember, that word, just potry, father, ark is, is the word for rule, father, rule, father, led. That's what the word means. The word is neutral in itself, but I understand the connotations that have grown up along it. But in the Bible, what we see right at the beginning, so God is starting to form his people, right? We've been through all this in past in detail. God is starting, he's calling who? He's calling Abraham, Abram. Going to make him a father of many nations. And what we see is this father-focused family, leadership in the family was focused on the father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes. He's responsible for the welfare of his family. This is the beginning of God's people. This is how he did, did it. Yes, yes, it is norm in that culture, but yet God is instituting, using this very form in his people, in his plan here. Andreas Kostenberger, I think he uses the word, I'll just put it up here, instead of patriarchal, because that, that is, that's connotations today, patricentrism. <laughs> There's a big word for you. Patricentrism. And I, I like how he describes it. He says it reflects the normative biblical disposition toward the role of the head of a household. And here's how he describes it. Similar to Hubs on a wheel. The father resided at the center of the ancient Jewish family. And like spokes, life radiated outward from the father to the members of the extended family. While the father was indisputably in charge of those under his care, the Old Testament rarely focuses on his power. Rather than functioning as a despot, the head of the household usually commanded the trust and provided for the security of its members. For this reason, it was not primarily the father's authority that was emphasized, but his responsibility for the welfare of the members of his household. I think that's well said. That's what we see in the pattern through the Old Testament, don't we? Patriocentrism. Not focused on just rule, but on provision and protection and leadership. As I said, it begins with Abraham and his family. 
And again, lest we think this is just all steeped in this culture that's irrelevant, we'll we'll see as we get through into our study that the New Testament, Peter himself, is going to look right back here to this relationship of Abraham and his wife and tell us that's important for us today. He's going to apply this. He doesn't see this as hopelessly patriarchal in some negative sense, but as relevant as part of God's design. So we'll, we'll get there. The New Testament uses it that way. The official descent was through the Son. We know that. That's the storyline of the Bible, the blessing. The 12 tribes, right? They come through the line. The Father gives the blessing, usually to the oldest. That's the Father's role. It's part of his role there as the head of this family. And then what we see really are the 12 tribes, clans and families with heads of each group. This is how the nation forms. As it begins to grow, it becomes clans and families with heads of each group. Again, listen to Bavink, theologian, Dutch theologian. He says, the entire organization of the nation was along patriarchal lines, arranged in terms of the principle of genealogical descent. The 12 tribes, among whom Judah was preeminent, were divided into clans, the clans into extended families, these extended families into households. Each of those groups had its own head, representative, or prince. And all these heads or princes together formed the members of the assembly. That's how it functioned. This is where we eventually come to elders of the assembly. So it it expands out that way. The first kind of form of, quote, civil government in the people of God are these elders, remember, that Moses appoints to assist him. So that's the pattern all through the scriptures, all through, I should say, the Old Testament, all that we see here. Now, again. We don't live in a patri-centric society in an agrarian economy, right, of these large families. We don't live in that. There are histor- this is historical, cultural expressions of the pattern of male leadership. What we're trying to discern is the pattern. That pattern that God has sanctioned and blessed, that's part of his design, and that's where we see it here. And, of course, we just go on. The pattern continues. The great figures, Moses comes, Moses and Aaron, Joshua, the judges, Samuel, right down to the kings. So that's first. Patriarchs be priesthood, this pattern of male leadership, the priesthood. The priest, again, we've seen this, but let me just remind us who the priests are. What do the priests do? The priest exercised authority by mediating God's relationship with Israel through the sacrificial offerings, temple worship, and teaching the law. That was the role of the priest. Sanctioned by God in his word with all the qualifications. Obviously a very important role in the nation of Israel. The priesthood as it's connected with the tabernacle and connected with the temple. They mediate God's relationship with the people. So they have an institutional authority defined in the law. They are the guardians of that sanctuary and temple. They are in charge of that temple worship, and they are the teachers. It was their role to teach Torah, the law. That was their role. So they were unlike the prophet, who was occasional and situational. Theirs was institutional and perpetual, their role here. And, as we note in the qualifications, women were excluded from the priesthood. Women were excluded from the priesthood. This is part of the qualifications. Starts with Aaron, 
So it's a tribe of Levites, starting with Aaron, and it's his sons. And that priestly role and that high priestly role will be passed through the sons. And then the tribe of Levi, so we have the priest properly that serve in the function of the sacrifices, the descendants of Aaron, the male descendants of Aaron who are qualified. And then the tribe of Levi and their functions, and those were men too in those specific functions that they did. So the scripture calls that out pretty clearly, though women did serve at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Twice in the Bible, Exodus 38, 1 Samuel 2, we are told that. It's a passing reference. It's not the main point. So we don't even really know what that is, that role, but some role there of serving at the doorway of the tent of meeting that was connected with this temple or tabernacle worship. So that part's clear. Now, when it comes to the priesthood, I think we have one of the most unequivocal instances of the pattern of male leadership in all of Israel and all of the scripture. It's just unequivocal here. I say that because other ancient Near Eastern cultures had women priests. That was not uncommon. Priestesses. So here's another place where the Bible intentionally is going against that culture with this. Priests were men. They had to be qualified, not all men, obviously, from that tribe. And the qualifications they had, lots of them. We won't go over all those. But here's a place where it's clearly God's direction and this pattern of male leadership. One last example. See the monarchy. We're most familiar here. The monarchy. We just finished a year and a half in the book of Kings. We saw 40 different kings in Israel. I won't ask you to name them all. It's not a quiz. 40 different kings we saw in Israel. And that's the point. They're all kings, not queens. Israel had only kings, not queens. The one exception, Athaliah, if you remember the story, 2 Kings 11, was an illegitimate usurper. It's the one exception in all the history of Israel when it comes to the monarchy who's ruling their kings by God's appointment. That one exception is seen just like that, an aberration. You remember that story, Athaliah, she's the one that tried to kill off all the offspring of David. She was the daughter of Ahab, wicked king in the north, who married the king in the south, and she tries to kill off all the offspring, but one, Joash, is spared, by the way, by a woman, her aunt. Remember that story? That's a great story. Jehoshaphat, that woman steps in, and then we know they ended up killing Athaliah. She was a usurper. In fact, she's not listed. There's no, there's no listing of her as part of the rulers of Israel. So that's the only time. So the king, pretty obvious. However, Israel, we saw it again over and over. The king, Israel's king, was not to be like the kings of the nations. It wasn't supposed to be just like those kings that were more despot and all about their rule. No, he represented God, right? He was to embody righteousness. Remember Deuteronomy 17, the qualifications are what a king was supposed to be. He wasn't supposed to multiply wives and he wasn't supposed to multiply horses and riches. He was there to serve the people under God. He was supposed to take a copy of this book of the law and write it out for himself. 
his own personal copy, so that he'd be steeped in this word. He would embody righteousness. He would promote justice. He would serve the people and not self. A very different kind of king. He was to be loyal to God's covenant and to God's people. That's the kind of king here that is the ideal. Now, we saw all the abuses, all the abuses of that, and yet that ideal king is still God's plan. So I put it like this, last note. As a son, as a, quote, son, the king was to represent the Lord's, that is his father's, righteous, benevolent rule. 2 Samuel 7, the great Davidic covenant, God says of the king, he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. The son is supposed to do what the father does. The king was to represent God's benevolent, righteous rule, including the concern for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the alien, the stranger. That's what a king is supposed to be like, reflecting God uniquely. That's the kind of rule that God has in mind here, a benevolent serving for the welfare of God's people. Now, again, remember the main point of the book of Kings was it prefigures the king, Jesus. Remember we said over and over every week, what's the point of the book of Kings? Longing for a better king. We saw all the distortions mostly and aberrations of it but we we want a better king that's where that story is going to the king the son the son the king the messiah that's where the story is going that's what it's pointing to that's what we are longing for and note this he is a man Jesus, the Son. God, the Son, takes on flesh, Christmas, right, incarnation, not generic humanity, but as a man. Do you think that's significant? I think it is. I think it is. I want to end with this point and have you wrestle with the point. Jesus, the incarnate son, is the ideal male leader. Provide, protect, and rule for our eternal good. He is the incarnate Son, and as that, he is the ideal. This is what the book of Kings is pointing us to. Now, let me, let me be careful here. <laughs> I want to be careful. Because it's, it's more than Jesus' maleness, right, that, that is important. He is a human being. He comes as one of us to rescue us. So he is the Savior of men and women equally. So that in Christ Jesus, when it comes to our salvation, there is neither male nor female. Galatians 3, 28. 
equal standing. He, he comes as the savior of men and women. And all of us, men and women, are being conformed to his likeness. It's an amazing thing to think of. We are being conformed to the image of the Son, men and women. So, don't want to diminish that. So important. We'll say more of that when we get to the New Testament. So, it's, it's more than just his maleness, obviously, but it's not less than him being a man. As I said, it's not just generic humanity. Why? Why? We, we could think, I encourage you to think on that, ponder that. We don't ponder these things probably very much. Could Jesus, could the, could the second member of the Trinity be incarnate as a woman? Now, we, we think of it, it's like, well, you're just, you're right on the brink of blasphemy here, right? You're, you're, you're right. But we, we need to stop and think about that. Yes, it seems like, well, that's, that seems ridiculous. Well, Why? Why? Well, we're so used to it. Well, yes, we're so used to it. Why? That's what we should be asking ourselves. It's intentional. Right, as I said, he doesn't come as transgendered or non-binary, but as a man. And I think a significant part of that is that pattern of male leadership that is exemplified in Jesus. He is the second Adam. He is our high priest. He is our king and ruler. So he is perfect in that sense. That's the pattern. That's part of God's design. Jesus embodies that. Oh, it's just intriguing to think on. Re related to that, think on this. God himself, God, the eternal God, the three in one God as we know him, is a spirit. Right? He doesn't have a biological gender, a biological sex. God is spirit. And yet, God images himself as male. That is, he represents himself by masculine names and titles. He is King, he is Lord, and the most precious of all, Father. Father, not mother, Father. King, not queen. Lord, not lady. Right? That's God. Now, there are descriptions of him that give feminine qualities. Is this part of his being, like a mother hen that protects her children and, and that? But he is never by feminine titles. That's fascinating. Why? Again, does it go back, I think, to this sense of his rulership, his kingship, his provision, his protection, his rescue, who he is. And men, male leadership, is imaging that. So, again, those are just things, big things. Think on if you've never thought on them before. Jesus, we want to look to Him. Men, look to Him. Yes, through the Old Testament, we have examples, but there's lots of distortions here, right? <laughs> but in Jesus, there's no distortion. 
If, if you want the ideal of what male leadership looks like, look to Christ. Gentle and lowly of heart. And all of his characteristics. Women, look to Jesus. You know, we'll talk more about the third, third pattern of women in the Old Testament next week. It's just glorious to look at here. But Jesus is all sufficient. You are being conformed to the image of Christ. Right? He is the one we are drawn to for our provision of salvation, our protection. We want him as our ruler. And we don't fear that at all, do we? It's what we're made for. We want it. We love it. Do you love it? Is he your ruler, Jesus, whether man or woman here this morning or a child? Is Jesus your king? Is he your ruler? Do you, do you see in him as your savior, the one you need? We draw near to him. I'm going to pray for us again. We'll pick this up again next week. Think specifically on women in the Old Testament. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, thank you for just your word. And oh, we need discernment. We long to know you, who you are and us made in your image. And oh, draw us to Christ, our savior our perfect king, the benevolent rule that we love. May we find shelter in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.